Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I probably should have asked. Rolling, take one. I feel terrible now. Okay, well. Is it going to be all right? Welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I am Eric. On this episode, we scored an interview with Rebecca Teague, one of the Minnesota photographers we're also in love with. We also want to talk to you about Marie Hoeg, a Norwegian photographer from the late 1800s whose photos were discovered in a barn within a box marked private. We'll also give a listen to two of the many many songs entitled Picture on the Wall. And there's the answering machine. There are some zine reviews. It's honestly a pretty packed show. So sit down, shut up, and welcome to another episode of All Through a Lens. Vanya. Yes. How the hell have you been? Great. You've been great. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> great. Very good. Uh, so what have I been doing uh, f- I, film photography related for the podcast that I could talk about? Hmm. Let me see. Well, I went into the middle of the channel here in the uh, South Bay. Okay. Now that is water for everybody else. Ocean. Ocean. Yes. Okay. And I jumped in uh, like 3,000 feet deep water. You weren't 3,000 feet deep. No. No. Just on the top. I was a tiny speck on the top. Yeah. So basically, I was looking for uh, Mahi Mahi because they're super colorful and very pretty, and they're in the channel right now. What the hell is Mahi Mahi? uh, Dolphin fish. They're like very colorful. say dolphin food? Fish. Gotcha. Do dolphins eat them? No. Fair enough. Go on. They're like amazing. They turn all sorts of colors when they're swimming. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. They're so beautiful. So I put some Portra in my camera, 220, and I went out there to shoot some. Did not see any. Oh, no. But... I did see something really amazing. I saw a mola mola, which is a sunfish. And if you guys have never heard of a mola mola or sunfish, I would definitely look it up. It is probably one of the oddest things you'll ever see. <laughs> now, the photos I've seen from it, they're they're huge. There's there's people posed next to them, and the mola molas are the fish. A fish is taller than the people swimming next to them. Is yeah. that like forced perspective or anything? It's no. Just so how it is. Most of the time people see like babies. This one that I got to see was about probably like eight feet. It was huge. Oh my god. I mean, it was scary huge. Wow. But they don't eat you, right? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Okay. Uh actually, usually if you are in a boat and just hanging out. And they pop up because they're bottom feeders. They eat off the bottom and then they kind of swim up to the top and catch some catch some rays and get warm, you know, get warmed up. Okay. So that's, that's why, why they're they called sunfish. Sun yeah, I guess. I guess. exactly. I so we saw him pop up 
and they'll kind of, they're curious. They'll come by your boat. They'll come by you. The problem I had was I was like nervously excited. So when I, I didn't like, you know, cannonball into the water, but when I got in, I kind of started to swim towards him and he was like not having it and kept turning around like just showing like the back of him. I was like trying to get a side view of him and he kept on like spinning around like, nope, nope, nope. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was so funny. So I shot like 20 pictures of this guy. It oh, was wow. so beautiful. Like I, I was like an arm link. I could touch him. I was that close. Um, you could see all his barnacles and there was like these little tiny baby fish, like eating all the barnacles on him. It was, ugh, it was probably one of the coolest things I've ever experienced in my life. Wow. So that was awesome. Yeah. You I got went, a ton of pictures, huh? Yeah. So I went home all excited. I'm like, I'm going to develop the pictures tonight, doing it. So went for it, developed the pictures, pulled them out. And it was a completely blank roll. <laughs> that's rare. That sucks. And that sucks. Yeah. So I was like, what did I do? What did I do? I saw that there was one picture that was exposed and it was like uh, maybe like the last picture I took and it was like of this, of pointing up towards the light, like more light. And I was okay. like, shit, I know exactly what I did. And I went and looked at my camera. I forgot to take it off 500th of a second. I was supposed to put it to 60th or like 125th because mm -hmm. I set my aperture at like, I think 4.5. Yeah. And I was going to be like, all right, I'm just going to do super shallow 4.5. But with the, I think I was rating my Portra. This is old Portra. So I was rating it at a hundred. Uh, but it was going to work because there's enough light actually. I'm not going super deep. Right. I'm going five to 10 feet maybe. Um, and your camera meters for you anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, cool. Like I got this set and I totally, because like, when I, when I shoot surfing, I like to set it at a, at 500th because then I get better shots of, sure. you know, I get better stills basically. So yeah, I blew it. It was my fault. I did <laughs> oh, it. Man. I have no proof of this most amazing moment that I had. It's just, I you're just going to have to trust me, you guys, that it actually happened. How rare is it to see one? Not actually very rare. Okay. So it's something you could go out and, and make it happen again. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Cool. Technically, I can go out tomorrow and do it again. Technically. But um, it's a... It's a boat, like the boat is going fishing and I don't want to go fishing. Oh, sure, sure. I just want to go swimming. <laughs> Fair enough. Or playing with the dolphins or whatever, <laughs> you know, just, I just, it, it's slightly terrifying to, like, I don't like to swim in black or dark water um, because it's scary. And yeah, yeah. jumping into the middle of the ocean, I can read a fish finder. I know exactly how to read it. I see that there's fish underneath me in all sorts of depths. It's just, I think it's something that you kind of have to experience and be out there to really like understand. Because when I think about it 
just here on, you know, while we're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, it's fine. I could do it. I'm going to do it again. But as soon as I get out there and I'm like hanging off the side of the boat and then I look down for the first time with my goggles and it's just this like gradient of blue that gets darker and darker, it's slightly terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. I think that'd be a little unsettling for me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, So that was one photographic fail. And then I have kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a fail. It was, it, it was terrifying. I was scared. I did something that I never thought I would actually do. And that was take pictures of, or document a moment, a very special moment in Uh, my sister-in-law's life. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and she's fighting it and she has a very good chance of um, clearing, but she has four chemo sessions and possible radiation. She just went through her first session a couple weeks ago and she was losing a lot of hair, a lot. So um, I brought over my shaver and I was like I'll shave my head too if you want in like solidarity and she was like no it's fine but um she wanted me to photograph it and it was uh very emotional and I mean I cried all the way home it was really really (laughs) sad but it was very I felt like so lucky that I was able to to capture that so I I shot some some pictures with the RB67 and then the Graflex Super D, some black and whites. And I got this shot of her youngest son um, helping, just taking a moment to, to help shave her head. And uh, her oldest daughter also decided that she wanted to do it too. Hmm. I think it just made it real for them. It was very emotional. They were like sad. Um, they kept like I kept explaining that like her hair was is gonna grow back. It <laughs> it does, <laughs> but it was so beautiful and powerful at the same time. And I was like telling them how amazing their mother is and how how like hair doesn't make you feminine. Doesn't make you you know this like a woman you don't need to have this hair to show femininity you know like your mom is powerful she had you guys like she's amazing she's getting on top of this and and doing it it was just awesome and i think that when i developed that shot of uh enzo the boy because he was pretty devastated he was really sad I was just, I was looking at this negative drying and thinking about, you know, I watched, I watched my brother, um, literally pull him out of her. And I was photographing then, like I, I've been able to photograph some of the most special and intimate moments of my brother and my sister-in-law's life. So this was kind of part of it. And, you know, seeing him for the first time as a baby, um, like just brand new. He was actually pretty good looking kid. Most of them are not that great looking, to be honest. But it's the ones you know that are better. But that, no, that. he's he's he had a beautifully round shaped head. It was like cone headish or anything. Okay. Um, but I think about that picture, and then I think about this one that I just took, and 
And um, I don't know. It, it's it's scary and sad, but also my heart is full in, in so many ways because of it. That's wonderful. It's wonderful that you have people that will trust you to take photos of like yeah. their they're like really like milestones, you know, good and bad, but just milestones in their lives. That's really wonderful. I think as photographers, we we do get asked that a lot. You know, people know that we're photographers and they've seen our work and they say, hey, uh, could, you, could you photograph this life event for us? And in yeah. your case, you know, they've seen you know, the portraits that you've done of their kids and the, and the time when you photographed her giving birth you know, they, they, you've seen you've seen them at some pretty pretty intense times, and so this is another time they wanted to have you uh, have you take a photo of that, and that's that's really wonderful. You kind of had something similar though. Sort of. Um, well, when your friends when your friends know that you are a photographer, they <laughs> assume that you are whatever photographer they want you to be. At the time, at no, the time I mean, yeah, this makes yeah. it. I think everybody can relate to this. Yeah, go and on. I, and it's just not the case. Like if if I don't know if I wanted like, hey, I need I I need to have this. Well, okay, I was asked to shoot a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> now, anybody who's seen my work knows that I've never photographed a human, <laughs> like basically ever. I photographed you like once or twice, Vanya. And that's the extent of my humans. I photographed myself once and that was it. No one's seen that except for, I think you and maybe a couple other people, but I, that's it. I have photographed horses. And I'm really think, good at that. I think I'm okay at, at photographing horses. So I figured, mm-hmm. no, this is a horrible idea. What are you doing? Why are you asking me to do this? But it's my friend, Jeff. I've known him for, for since we were 18. We kind of um, not really grew up together, but sort of, you know, had our adult, early adult lives together. You know, I lived with them for a bit. We we you know we did a lot of like work and and art and and just some really wonderful times. He's one of my best, one of my best and closest friends, and a person who you say like I would do anything for him, and then he asks you to photograph his wedding, and you're just like, well, may- maybe not anything. <laughs> So I explained to him that no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> uh, have you seen what I photograph? And he and he was like, well, yeah, but you know, most people who aren't photo- photographers don't really understand photography, and they shouldn't. There's no reason for them to. And so he just assumed like, well, you could just do it. And I was like, no, I I can't. I'm really bad at, at oh my god at this. And he's like, well, you saying that makes in my mind makes you qualified to photograph a wedding, which I understand where he's coming from. Somebody who who uh, wants to be a leader badly, probably not a good leader, but that person who, oh, I don't really want to lead, maybe a good leader. And he, he's trying to apply that philosophy to photography. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. So I said yes. <laughs> um, because he's Jeff. And yeah, I don't know. I don't friend. know how to say no. He's, he's like my one of my best friends. I, I can't. I can't say no. And so I explained to him, it very you know, like, listen, I cannot guarantee a single shot from this. I can't promise you a single shot will turn out from this. 
I will shoot in color. I will shoot in black and white. I will ask you what you want. But for the most part, expectations need to be very fucking low. He was okay with that. Mostly because of my price, which was free because he's Jeff. Uh, and with photographers, especially event photographers, you do get what you pay for. <laughs> Probably to a certain point. But, you know, where I was, you, you do get what you pay for. Uh, sort of. I... So the day arrived and I had, I had, you know, I bought some film. I bought some, some, my go-to, my foma pan, and I have expired color. And I explained to him that expired color maybe renders skin tones a little weird. Maybe, but not, not, there's pretty fixable in post. And, uh, you know, you're going to be getting some weird looking photos. And yeah. he was cool with that. He's a weird guy. So he's, he's cool with that. You're a weird it, guy too. I, well, you know, and his wife is <laughs> apparently, I, I, I didn't meet his wife until, uh, that that day, I didn't actually speak to her until after the ceremony. So oh, wow. I, I did shoot it. I'm not going to go through like all the photos I took because I don't. It's a kind of a blur at this point. It was easily the most stressful photography I've ever done. Oh, for sure. Just pretend they were horses. <laughs> I tried that. They're totally not. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of them look like horses, even a little bit. Which okay, good for them. Yeah, but, true. Oh my god, it was intensely just just terrifying, and it wasn't that like, well, I'm gonna like I'm gonna fuck all of these up. I mean, that was part of it, but it was just like I don't know what to do. Okay, I've not really been to a wedding where there was a photographer. Weird. I just I just don't. I just haven't been, you know, I, I live three thousand away three thousand miles away from almost all of my childhood friends. And then so and most of those are kind of like punks or like weird hippie type people. And so their weddings are, you know, pretty abnormal. So I haven't and, and Jeff's was as well. I don't I haven't been around like a photographer to know like, oh, here's what you do. Here are the things you do. And you know, I didn't do a ton of research on this. So I just figured I was going to go and shoot it how I would shoot. I wouldn't say anything, but how I would shoot. I don't know. I just went and saw what happened. And I did six rolls. Uh, you know, did the, the typical, like, here's like the family stuff. Like, here's grandma with the kids or whatever. I don't remember what happened. But in the end, I, I think I did okay. All of the photos, uh, except for one, Turned out, it was outdoors. I wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been able to do it indoors. I don't know what I don't know how to use a flash at all. So I, I I'm glad it was outdoors. But unfortunately, by the time they were ready to do the ceremony, the sun had moved so that the couple were like half in shade and half in the sun. Not much I could really do with that. I did the best I could, and in post, I corrected as best I could. And the black and white pictures actually, I mean, it's not too surprising. They look a lot better than the color pictures in that. I don't know. I sent them to them and I haven't heard back, which is not incredibly surprising for Jeff. I hope they like them. Well, I hope so too. Yeah. I haven't seen them. You should send me some. I will send you some. I took two glass plates. Uh, one turned out a little bit and the other one didn't really turn out at all, but that was very experimental. And I think we're gonna go into more of that in the next dev party. Yes. Yes. So I'll save all of that for then. But I did some sheets as well. Some like, I think it was from a pan sheets. And those turned out really well. I'm, I'm pretty happy with how that turned out. Uh, I'm more than willing to photograph them again if they don't like 
what what they what they saw. You know, maybe get 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 dressed up again and we'll go do it again. I, I don't know, but I won't be photographing a wedding again. Um, maybe Jeff's next wedding I will, but um, probably nobody else's. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sorry. You you should not hire a landscape photographer to shoot weddings. (laughs) I don't know. I'm excited to see the pictures. You will see them. You'll see them. I have them all on a Google Drive and all of that like you're supposed to. So you'll see them. So that was what I did photographically. It's the first thing I've done since the trip. It's the last thing I've done from between then and now. Yeah, it was weird. Okay, well, how about we uh, take a break and check our answering machine? Oh, fucking finally. Each episode, we put on our house slippers and cozy cardigans and check our answering machine. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering... Whatever weird-ass question we come up with. And that question is... What would it take for you to give up photography? I love this question. And... It's very dramatic. Almost nobody understood it. Or, I mean, the people who called in absolutely did. But it just... I got questions about it. People didn't understand it. And, And maybe it's because giving up photography is a foreign concept, but I don't think it should be. And there's a couple of people who responded to this, uh, speaking to that. So I, I guess I guess at this point, we, we just push the button and see what we get. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi guys, uh, whatever reasonable answer I try to come up with, for this question, it only ends up in one word. Uh, so here we go. Death. Period. I can't come up with anything else. Thank you. Yours sincerely, M. I knew we were going to get death. <laughs> because that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of any other reason I would stop, at at, at least right now. I guess... Death is our last shot. Or I guess like it's at the moment after our last shot. We can't, wait, what? What are you you ooing? I'm just thinking like, you know, maybe one day like I'm going to see an apparition of like some old timey like photographer person, you know, like maybe they were shooting like a picture and like a train hit them and they don't know they're dead and they're just roaming, floating around, shooting still. It, it is a good question that I mean, why don't we ever see photographer ghosts trying to take yeah. pictures of the living? Maybe in yeah. the ghost world, there's no proof that the living exists. And maybe. so the ghosts are just like, no, no, I want to prove the living exist. I don't know. Maybe we're just not worth photographing. <laughs> Hey, Eric and Vanya, this is Jess. Hope you're both doing well. The only thing that would make me stop doing photography is blindness, which I actually sort of have a story about. Nine-ish years ago, I had a severely detached retina. I had a bubble inserted behind my eyeball, had to lie down only on my right side for an entire month, and had to have multiple laser surgeries to repair it. 
I had no idea at first that the retina was detached. I just thought it was an ocular migraine, which I sometimes get. So I let it lapse for a few weeks until I finally went to see my optometrist. Everything is A-OK -okay now, but I was really close to losing my vision in my left eye. I now take my vision health much more seriously, especially knowing that I have increased chances of glaucoma and cataracts in the future. So not being able to see would be the end of photography for me. Even in death, though, I'm taking my RB67 with me, so here's hoping I can haunt a few favorite spots, and all anyone will hear is a mirror slap and shutter going off. Take care. I had no idea she was going to say that. That's amazing. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it really is. I'm, I, I, I didn't know either. And what an ordeal. I mean, as a photographer, what a kind of yeah. a, a, a terrifying little thing to go through. Yeah. I can't, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really imagine it. So yeah, that's crazy. Also, I, I shoot with my left eye. I'm, I'm right-handed, but I focus, uh, you know, through yeah. the viewfinder through my left eye. So that would suck for me. It would. But she does ask, or at least she uh, insinuates the, the haunting of, uh, with, with cameras. Yeah. yeah. I like that she decided with the RB because it's not just like a click. It's like a clunk. Well, I, it's the camera equivalent to rattling chains. It is yeah. definitely a little, it's, it's definitely a rattling chains type of yeah. ghostly camera. I like it. Hi guys, Michael here. So I don't think neither ever growing prices of film nor the risk of my digital equipment becoming outdated in a few years are a true risk of me completely abandoning photography. Uh, because, as I remembered, thanks to this question, I have my roots as a mobile photographer, and I took a minute or two to dig out my early works. And despite the fact that they are pretty hideous, it's still a possibility to this day. Uh, so the two things I can think of that can make me completely stop taking new photographs are A me dying obviously and be boredom which i highly doubt that i can ever be bored of photography i love the idea of boredom well not the idea of boredom but i love being able to, to let go of photography if you're bored with it there's no possible way you would just find something else to photograph if you're bored of maybe photographing something else you could just you know not necessarily you can get tired or of it. Maybe bored of a camera, you could switch cameras. There's like so many different options. You know, I was thinking about sometimes I don't have a camera and I get sad that I can't photograph. So I will take a picture with my ghost camera. <laughs> okay. I actually do. Like, I'll be like, oh my God, this would be such a cool picture. And I... I literally put my fingers up like I'm holding a camera. I'm assuming it's like a Leica or something. I don't know. And I take a picture. <laughs> like like Jim and Pam at their wedding. Yes. The mental exactly. pictures. Yeah, I, I guess. And it, I don't, like, I can't picture me giving up photography because I'm bored. But I'm okay with that happening. Like if I'm not enjoying photography anymore, there's no reason for me to do this. You know, yeah. I do this because I enjoy it. It's it. I know people don't really care for the, the word, but it is a hobby. And if I'm no longer having fun with it, 
there's no reason for me to continue it. It's sort of, or if I'm just done, I used to write a lot of poetry, like a lot. And one day I just like, I think I'm okay not doing this. And then I Lame. never did it again. And I'm okay with that. And if I go back to it someday, that's cool too. I, and I like that about myself where I can, I can just give something up and not really regret it because I'm finished with it. At least for now, I can also pick it up again and not feel the shame of like, oh, I should have kept doing this. I don't know why I ever gave it up. It's not like, it's not like selling your 1970 VW bus because the clutch is bad. You're going to regret that. Yeah. Yeah, Dumb. absolutely. But if you're finished with any kind of art or really any kind of hobby or any kind of anything, then you're finished with it. And there's nothing you can do about that. And you need to be able to let it go. Otherwise, you're just going to be miserable and trying to go through the motions. And why? Why do that? Well, our last one is Bill Two. And he is from Australia. Actually, all four of our call-ins are from Not America. Love it. Yes. So I don't know what's going on with you United Statesians out there. But uh, mm. anyway, here's Bill. Hi, Bill 2 here. You can find me at B-I-L-L-T-H-O-O on Instagram and Twitter. I'd give up photography, all of it every single image to keep my family safe and secure. The only reason I can do photography, which is quite an indulgent pastime because my family are safe and secure and I don't have to worry about that aspect of life. Love you guys. Hope you're safe and secure. Signing out. Oh, I adore Bill so much. He is the most supportive person in the film community. Oh, I, I for think, sure, 100%. I think hands down. I don't, I don't know that that can even be debated. No, it can't. But I, when, I, when I first heard it, I was like, okay, keep your family safe and secure. And in America, that means something. That means, you know, you just, you, you got a lot, you got a big arsenal. That's essentially what that means in America. Oh, you mean like, oh, okay, okay, gotcha. You, you have like, like a bunker. Stuff. <laughs> like, but, you know, I don't know exactly how he meant that, but in, in America on that, yeah, we are, we're flirting with fascism. We're flirting with civil war. And yeah, that would, and hopefully temporarily, that would probably stop a lot of us and should stop a lot of us from just frivolous photography. I don't know that it would in America. Well, yeah, I think it has probably a lot to do with financial like if you are could be like she he's obviously financially responsible and able to still do you know the things that he likes to do with photography and keep his family safe and secure of course but you know it's something we do need to think about in in the u.s what what do we what are we willing to sacrifice for freedom or democracy or or, or whatever and 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 you know, I know that looking back in our in our history, there's war photographers, civil war photographers, and all of that, and those were nice, planned out, very clean wars. In contrast to what I think would happen if America does fall into civil war again, yeah. Um, and I don't know. It's it's a it's a strange way to answer that question. Not for Bill, but I think where I'm taking this. Well, I think it just gives an example of how a couple words can be can can sound completely different 
for someone living on the other side of the world. Yeah, I don't think Australia, with all the problems that they have, are 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 where we are right now, which is really a shame because I would rather, much rather, be where they are. <laughs> so, thank you, everybody, all four of you, for calling in. We we do really appreciate it. It's it's wonderful to hear from people. This is one of my favorite segments of our show and. Every yeah. season we kind of go through and, and, and think about like, what can we do differently? What can we cut? And this is never, ever even suggested, even yeah. though it's, it's, it sticks out. It's a little weird. It's a little it weird. Is. I can see us modifying like, it here I like or there. It. I like the weirdness. I do. It, it's very, uh, it's very all through a lens and that's uh, convenient since our podcast is all through a lens. True. So give a listen to our next episode of Dev Party to hear our own take on this question. But until then, what is the next question that we're asking? If you could completely forget about a photographer, specifically to re-experience their work for the first time, who would it be and why? Yeah, because we're introduced to a lot of photographers early on. And now that, I mean, some of us have been doing photography for decades. So who would influence us now if only we could experience them again for the first time? That reminds me of an episode of Freaks and Geeks when okay. they talk about- uh, Oh God, uh, I know exactly what you're going American to say. American Beauty. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I never heard it, just so I could hear it again for the first time. Uh, so everybody, Call our answering machine and leave us a message. This is, I, I feel, a really fun and interesting question. And of course, by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very, very much, or you are one of four, we will play it on the next episode. Some of us turn to music for inspiration for our photography, but many musicians have turned to photography for inspiration for their music. We've talked about Guy Clark and Depeche Mode in the past, and on this episode, we'll tell you about one of my personal favorites, and that's Picture on the Wall by the Carter family. There's an old and faded picture on the wall That has been a-hanging there for many years Is a picture of my mother, for I know there is no other That can take the place of mother on the wall it was recorded in 1932 in Atlanta, Georgia, but it was written a few years before by Uncle Bud Landris, who recorded it himself a few years earlier with his band, the Georgia Yellow Hammers. <laughs> I would love to know what that means. Where does that come right? from? Well, the song itself is about a photograph on the writer's wall. It's it's his mother or her mother. And it's about what it means to them, the photo. They used to go to their mother for all their troubles and now she seems to have died and they can't do that anymore. There's also little bits in there that I appreciate, like a little mention of, you know, I'll play my guitar. And it's just, it's just it, it, brings, it makes the song a little more personal. Oh, I know I'll meet my mother 
it brings to mind how people who are traveling like the the Oregon Trail or just moving from like Ohio or to the West, when they said goodbye to their parents and their mom, they, they knew that they were probably never going to see them again. So we're talking people who are like, you know, starting their own families, late 20s, who were just never, ever going to see their, their mom again. I guess it was, it, I wouldn't say normal because a lot of people stayed at home. For forever and yeah, ever. but I, I actually wanted to say it was kind of normal. At least it was like at least a second or third generation of that because a lot of people came to America around the time of, the, I'm assuming, the Oregon Trail. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. So they left their family behind. What you're saying, the time, it would be like maybe the second generation that was born here. All they knew were their parents. So I don't know if that makes it easier or harder, because now that I think about it, I think that might be harder. Yeah, it's just another generation, not displaced really, but just not where they're from. But that's what it reminds me of. It's not really about that. It really is just about a photo of the departed mom and how since mom can't be there, that photo needs to be, and that's their most cherished possession. It's a real sweet song. It is very sweet. I have a picture of my mom's not departed yet. I told her she can't. She has to live forever. I told her that I we can't handle her dying, so that never is going to happen. Oh, well, that's good. So she's going to live forever, but her picture is on my wall. Also, my grandmother, who is departed, is on my wall. Mm. I have lots of pictures on my wall. And yeah, I think it's a pretty normal thing mm -hmm. for people to have at least one wall that's for family. Really? That's still... Portraits. I, 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 my parents do. I've never done that. I've never, I don't have any photos of any relatives or of any kind on my walls. You're weird. Is that maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. I think it is you. I think it's, it's not that you're like a minimalist per se. Not at all. No. Because <laughs> you do like things on the wall, but you have an eclectic taste like myself. Yeah. But yeah, I have a mixture. Like I have my, my clown wall, but also there's family members on the clown wall too. Maybe some of your family members are clowns. You know, it's implied. I see. Well, the other picture on the wall is by Freddie McKay. So it's a reggae song with a rock steady beat, and it was recorded in 1971. about his mother, it's about a girl who either left him or died. It's not really clear. He keeps asking himself, why is the picture still hanging? He can't stand looking at it, but can't stand to take it down either. So, Vanya, you were saying that, that most people, not me, most people have photos of their family on their wall. But I guess it's maybe a certain age that would have photos of their girlfriends. I would assume this is a girlfriend that he's talking about, like having on their wall. I I don't know. It's something I've, I've never done. Have you lived with girlfriends? Yeah, of course. So you probably had like at least a picture on the refrigerator or something. Maybe. But let, let's just, okay, for the sake of the song, let's say yes. I'm like, kind of, I think I have a picture of you on my refrigerator. <laughs> well, you know, 
I don't know if it's a thing to do, but I don't know that I would ever have to like fight the urge to take it down. Maybe it's part of that sentimentality. If you have a picture up and she leaves you and you're heartbroken, you would have a hard time taking it down. You would have a hard time looking at it. We now just delete photos from the phone and maybe that's easier. I delete pictures off my phone, okay. but I have them backed up somewhere. I don't know, they're somewhere probably. For the most part, I have pictures of all my ex-boyfriends, you know, and okay. it's not a big deal. If they were in photo albums at one point, they're, they're not anymore. They might be in a box or they might be in an album that is in storage, but I don't throw pictures or delete pictures. Yeah. Some of the reasons why I was being so thoughtful about shooting film again was because I didn't want to delete pictures. I don't want to take 5,000 photographs. I want to take five. I think I have a problem with like getting rid of stuff. So um, having to go through a ton of digital files would be a nightmare for me. I know some people can do it. Yeah. I just cannot. I don't know if we have like a modern version of just take it down. It is sort of a delete or, or don't delete situation. I guess it is a delete yeah. or don't back up or something. Maybe it's, yeah, I maybe it's just know. kind of lose track of it. The, the I know that burning pictures or ripping pictures were a thing at some point, but I don't know. I have a funny story about my mom burning something of my stepfather's. There are a shocking number of different songs with the title Picture on the Wall. Echo and the Bunnymen's Pictures on My Wall is doesn't count different title. Three of these songs are reggae songs, and I don't really know why. A number of them are also country songs. In all, I think there's around maybe 27, 28 of them. So what I plan to do next month is put together a little Patreon bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers, you lucky devils, that goes through all of them, every single one of them, and their various covers. So this will be maybe 40-ish songs in total, and this would be Original hit songs by artists such as Max Redding, The Naturalites, Lightning Hopkins, Skinny Cavallo, Eldritch, Gabby Ranks, Orgone, Jack Ingram, Kaz, J.E. Maynard's Mountaineers, Merle Travis, Rachel Brooke, Bushy One String, and Homeboy Sandman. So if you're not a Patreon supporter, get on that. This is going to be sort of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope so. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, there is a tight, unofficial collective of film shooters. We've talked with both Kate Miller-Wilson and Taylor in previous episodes, and today we're rounding it out with an interview with Rebecca Teague, aka Rebecca.film on Instagram. Rebecca is usually a woman of few words, letting her photos speak for themselves, except today, of course, so let's run that tape. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> How, how's your day going today? How's it, how's it for you? Um, it's been a regular day. I had work today and then dinner today. I rode my bike today. Ooh. So just regular. Regular day. Nice. I wish, I wish bike riding was a part of my regular day. Alas, oh, yeah, it's there's great. cars and I don't trust them. <sighs> well, we will begin with the first question. A simple one. 
What in your life has led you to photography? Well, all I can tell you is that when I was a teenager, I found my dad's Minolta and I very obviously got obsessed with it. And then he gave it to me. So I've been taking photographs ever since. It was an aperture priority. And he told me to keep the needle kind of in the middle. And that's where I started. And I had that camera for a long time. And then somebody gave me a rolly cord. That was my first media format camera. And just cameras, cameras, cameras ever since. I think it's just uh, like uh, an excuse to stare at things. It's nice to have an excuse to stare at things. Otherwise, you're just staring at things. Who are your influences? I don't I don't know. My dad definitely was, like the way he was not a technical photographer. And I think about the people I grew up around in Arkansas, like my friend Joel, who um, I was meddling through my parents' stuff and then found my dad in Larger. And Joel had been to school for photography, and he came over and showed me how to print. And I was thinking, the way I print now, how Joel would have had to use what I had at hand, which was nothing. And he taught me how to print in like one day. And I'm thinking about how amazing that was that he was trained in photography. And then he took a person with no background and got me started on printing. So I kind of grew up punk adjacent. So I was in the DIY community. And I think that's the biggest influence on me is just being sort of equipped with figuring things out on my own or or figuring things out with other people who had skills that I didn't have. Yeah, but he just wasn't using it, and he just finally gave it to me, and it was a big deal to me. I yeah. love that camera. I still have it. It's totally broken. I dropped it off of cliffs, had a light leak. I had to tape it up with electrical tape every time I put new film in it, but I just love the thing. So we asked you about your influences, but who would you like to influence? I don't want to influence anybody. I can't think of a single person that I care to influence. I think I would rather be influenced because I have really strong opinions about everything and I'm obsessive, so I'd rather have my mind changed. <laughs> oh, nice. like that. One of the weird things about talking about photography is I don't think photography is very important. It's important to me, but I know from people I know who aren't interested in photography, it's not intrinsically interesting. So I don't really need to share it with anybody. I like doing it and it's important for me and it's something I would, I do something photographic every day, but I'm fine with that. So you're not an evangelist for film? Well, I am because I want the young people to keep buying film so they keep making film. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that's that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so one of the things we're doing this season with our interviews, and we're trying this out, not sure how it's going to work, is we're asking the photographer we're interviewing to select a, a few other photos and talk about them. And the first one you picked, could you describe it? It's the one with the the, the photo oh, with the eyes. Yeah. The so that is the very first time I got together with my friend Devin. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know him at the time. We met as strangers, and there's a really, really weird connection between us. I was kind of freaked out by meeting him. So I asked him if, like a couple of months before that, if we could take portraits. And he emailed back some ideas, and I got this idea about fragmenting people, like fra fragmenting Devin, based on what he said. So when I was taking those photos, I was thinking about looking at a person as fragments. And then I was also having this weird emotional experience because 
Devin knew my brother in Arkansas, and it's really weird. So I was making strange noises, like like uh, (laughs) uncontrolled noises of emotion. And then I looked at Devin, and I was like, this feels like therapy. And (laughs) I was just realizing what what portraiture does. Like, that's kind of when I started thinking – Maybe it wouldn't be terrible to take portraits of people because it obviously does something. And then I was thinking about the whole idea of that shoot was to sort of fragment Devin and make him disappear. And then since then, we've been taking portraits every week and we're on 10 months now. And I realized that what has happened through that process is I've disappeared. Like I'm no longer... Um, really hung up on my role photographing him. It's more like I'm just seeing Devin and taking pictures and then I come home and print them and they all go in a box and it's hundreds of photos and it's kind of amazing that we get to do this. But I, I picked that photo just because it was sort of a transitional thing for me accepting that it's okay to take portraits of people and it's okay to have a portrait made. He and I have a Google Doc of portrait ideas and we're always adding to it. So there are dozens of things on there. So every week when we get together, we usually have talked ahead of time about which portraits we're going to work on. You know, if we're going to do this every week for this year of his life is what we're doing, then there are so many possibilities about how to see somebody that way. I love, I love that. I think it's so wonderful to commit yourself to not only being able to see your friend and and it's not like a big deal to photograph. Now it's just like, it's just part of it. When I don't take portraits for a while and then I go take one, that first, that first session is like a little, it's always like a little, like I get scared or Mm -hmm. nervous. And then once it's done, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I I know what I'm doing. I just got to like be confident. But just mm-hmm. to be able to like get yourself out of your just like out of your space and see a friend and then you get to collaborate. Had you shot portraits before? I've always shot portraits, but I felt really conflicted about taking photos of people. I've always thought that you can't there's not really a way that a person can give informed consent to having their portrait made because you can't predict what's going to happen to the portrait in 20 years or how you're going to feel about it. Um, So it feels like a lot to ask, but what I started doing was taking portraits of photographers and talking to photographers about taking portraits and having their portrait made. And then through doing that, I realized I'm, I'm the only person that feels this conflicted about portraits. It's not a big deal. Like people take, portraits and share portraits all the time Mm -hmm. and uh just because i feel weird about it doesn't mean that's the only way to feel (laughs) that that is that is true that's a that's just a good life lesson honestly yeah you said you've been taking portraits for a while now what brought about your love for them is it just this recent collaboration no i think i always love portraits like when i was a teenager and in my 20s i was always taking pictures of people i lived with or people in the community i would sometimes approach strangers and ask to take portraits and that always went fine but i just i guess i just felt like i don't want my portrait made how can i ask other people to take their portrait you know it doesn't seem fair and then i was just more into 
taking pictures of things and places and thinking of those as portraits. Like I always take pictures of human altered places and I think about, oh, this is kind of a portrait of the people that were there and what they did to the place. But then I started thinking like, maybe a portrait can be viewed as a landscape. Like you're looking at a person in the context of where they are. So it's, it's kind of just a spectrum or a continuum of how to see people in context. And I just wanted to quit feeling conflicted about it. Uh, what is it about photography that makes you continue shooting? It's probably obsession because it's the thing that I ended up settling on. I'm a darkroom person and I love printing. And I think most of the time I'm just shooting so I have something to print. I, I kind of love the whole thing. I love cameras. I love talking to photographers, hanging out with photographers. I like hitting the shutter release button. I think I get a dopamine rush every time. And I like printing. I just like everything about it. I like buying film. <laughs> it, it's all very convenient then, isn't it? It's just nice to like the whole package. <laughs> so um, looking over your, your Instagram feed, I, I came across a few posts about the Graflex Crown graphic saying along the lines that you're feeling, you're feeling very at home with it. It's an unwieldy camera just by its nature. So what makes you feel at home with yours? So my brother found three of them in a trash pile. So that's what makes me feel at home with it, that it was trash. It was going to go to the dump. And then he saved three of them and he mailed them to me. So I have a trash camera and there was nothing like no expectation that I had to learn to use it or it was just a gift. And I don't think it's unwieldy. I got a graphic view. That thing is unwieldy. The monorail. Yeah, those are. Yeah. The crown graphics, like, you can put it in a backpack and go on a bike ride with it. It's true. It's not ergonomic in the least. I think it. I think it's fine. <laughs> well, that's why you feel at home with it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's a dainty little 4 by 5 Portable. Maybe. Maybe it's dainty. And that's okay. And my my lens that I the trash gods bless me with is all scratched <laughs> up and dinged, and it makes such nice photos. Nice. Ooh. Let's take a look at another one of your photos. Uh, this is the one with a collection of buildings. The reason I wanted to look at that one is because that sort of, it sort of stands in for my very parasitic way of thinking about places that I'm not from. And that was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where my childhood best friend was from. So she she used to tell me all these stories about Cedar Rapids, where it kind of became a mythology. All this stuff she told me. And that trip to Cedar Rapids was the way I was thinking about it as specifically as I was going to shoot this mythology that I made up from her stories. And I remember I called her before I left and I was like, is there anything in Cedar Rapids you want to photograph of? And she's like, no. It's totally different. It's not the same place. So that that was just like the backside of an abandoned building in a neighborhood that's kind of being gussied up. And it's across the river from her childhood home, which is now gone because of flooding. And I just felt like there's still like this residual mythology there, even though she hasn't been there for 30 years and all the places that she grew up are gone. She might have walked through this alley. You know, she might have crossed the river and come over here and 
you know, thugged around with her juvenile delinquent friends. And so that I kind of feel like that's what I do places where I'm not from. Mm. I try to think of a story or mythologize a place to find some magic there. And I think those photos worked really well for that. Uh, You shoot mostly in the Midwest, but you are not native to the Midwest. How has this outside perspective affected your work? I was thinking about growing up as a weird kid in rural Arkansas and how I always felt like an outsider there. And the people I liked in Arkansas were outsiders. My dad was a really weird Baptist preacher and I grew up out in the country and we didn't have a phone and we had one car. So there was just this isolation. So I always felt like I'm, I am very comfortable being by myself and I'm comfortable imagining things about places I go and people I meet. So I feel like I just, that's my innate tendency is just to try to find some kind of meaning in places when I don't even believe there is any meaning. That's just kind of like my lot in life. When I go back to Arkansas now to visit, um, I don't think I am accepted as an Arkansan anymore, like when I'm in the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends down there said it's because I wear the glasses like an intellectual would wear, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so have you published any of your work? Self-published or... Nah. No. Any any desire to? Not really. Okay. I just like printing and then putting the prints in boxes. Okay. I like stacking the boxes up and then looking at the boxes and knowing they're full of prints. Well, let's look at another one of your photos, the the last that we'll be looking at. It is the one where there's a half a face in a looks like a, a mirror of some sort, like a side mirror on a truck. Coupled with that, there was a new photo from just a couple of weeks ago that's the exact same thing and I didn't wasn't aware of the older photo when I was taking the newer photos so the whole point of that is that I've been taking the same photos for 30 years (laughs) so what uh what is this photo um the first one was with my Minolta when I was on tour with a punk band we were stopped somewhere in Montana I was the only like persistently sober person. So whenever we got anywhere, I would go walk around and take photos. And I probably just saw that truck in a parking lot and thought, oh, this was nice. And then more recently, I was just walking around Ironwood, Michigan and um, saw an old truck. And I I just thought, well, I mean, it's like a marker of where I am wandering around. So I took the same photo. But the difference is like, when I was a child, I had a Minolta, and now as an adult, I have a Leica. So that I just wanted to point <laughs> out that you can improve your cameras. <laughs> what was the band? They're called the Stranger Steels. Yeah, it was. I had the. I had more fun than anybody in the band on the tour. I was just along, but I had so much fun. Were you just like doing merch or just photography with it, or? I just I just went. Okay. You know how it was. Like yeah. there was a seat in the van. You just, you just go. go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess this is our last question. So it says in in some cases you take pictures of taking pictures. 
What is it about the photographic process that you find interesting enough to capture? I think that a lot of people do not have emotional attachments to cameras. And I really love cameras and I love people watching people interact with cameras. It's kind of like car people. Like when you when you go to a cafe and you see a table of you know, it's going to be men and they're talking about their vintage cars and they're all wearing car t-shirts and they're totally passionate about mechanics. I love cameras. Like I, I love the mechanics of a camera and I like seeing people interact with cameras. And I think a lot of times now we're so inundated with images that people don't think about how photos are made. So I like to take a photo of a person making a photo just to show that it's not just like something that came out ready-made from a camera and a printer. It's a, a person interacting with a mechanical device out in the world. And, you know, you have to love it to buy film and either get your film developed or develop your film and go through all that. I think it's a little different now because there is people on social platforms that pose with their cameras, I'm sure, but it's a little different than just like capturing someone in their mind, in their creative space, doing something that they absolutely love. It's fascinating. Is it different? Uh, yes. Like someone taking a selfie with their with their camera. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. I'm not sure it's different. I think so. I think it's part of the same thing. Like it's saying, I'm here with this camera. And when you take a picture of yourself with your camera, it means that you have a relationship with the camera. You're not just taking a photo. It's that you have some kind of relationship with this weird old machine that you're keeping alive. I, I, I have a hard time feeling emotional connections to my cameras. The, the Shamini and the RB67 ex, uh, accepting. Is it different for different people? Or, oh, absolutely. Okay. Like, there are the camera people that just buy and sell cameras all the time. Yeah. And I don't understand how you would do that. Like, if I had a human child, I would probably just leave it at the fire station and be done with it. But it, a camera that I love, I will never, ever part with it. There's no way. Like, I have, I think my, my the cameras I love, it's not normal the way I love them. <laughs> Well, we're wrapping up. We've we've gone through the questions. How can people find you? Hopefully they won't. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I'm just going to go back in my hole. Well, how nice. can they find you online? Yeah, I'm just on Instagram. That's it. Okay. And it's Rebecca.film on yeah. Instagram. Okay. Yeah. We won't tell them the, the odd spelling of Rebecca, just to throw them off. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for entertaining us. Yeah, for, uh, this was really neat. I it didn't kill me. It, it did not no. kill you. You are, We're in still fact, all alive. still alive. <laughs> yes, it is good. It's a good thing. We often kill the guests. Usually. A little thing we yeah. like to do. It's fun. It, it, you <laughs> know, a lot of serial killers were photographers, I've noticed. It's that a good was. way to get victims. Yeah, I'm surprised we actually did, haven't done, like, a serial killer, like... You should. ...episode. Yeah. Well, find us a serial killer, and we will research them. And and uh, oh, dude, that guy with the, the that would take pictures of people. Oh, oh, that guy. That guy. That, that guy yeah, but there was like pictures. the one that like they were like they're still finding like who are these people because he had so many pictures. Oh, I remember that guy. Yeah, because all you have to say is, "Hey, I'm a photographer. Do you want to yeah. come over and we'll do some headshots?" Yeah. 
nuts. A, a bit. A bit. But, you know, at least I have a fallback plan. <laughs> and then you have to have your own dark room because you can't take your photos to the photo lab. Yeah. No, you definitely can't. Dark room slash kill room. Hmm. Drain on the floor type of thing. <laughs> All right, this is getting dark. Getting morbid. <laughs> yeah, I like it. But, you know, I don't want to give away too much. No. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. And uh, hopefully we'll be chatting with you again soon. It was good meeting you both. Good meeting yes. you. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. How do you tell a story of a photographer who left no writings, no journals, no diaries, no letters? There is nearly no story to tell, and yet the story that we have of Marie Hoag is one that we've heard more than a few times. The story of a forgotten photographer, not suddenly recalled, but discovered through her found photos. The story of Marie Hoag isn't so simple. Her photographs aren't the landscapes of Evelyn Cameron or the portraits of Laura Webb Nichols, despite the fact that she was contemporary to both. But let's start in the 1980s, nearly a century after she picked up a camera. Our story, or what can be nearly called a story, starts in an old barn in Norway on a farm that was once owned by Marie Hoag and Bolette Berg, two women from the town of Horten. They were business partners, and likely more, though that is the first of many speculations. In this barn was found a box containing over 400 glass plates from the photography studio they owned together from 1895 to 1903. Within this box was another box, closed and sealed, and marked private. The plates that could be viewed without further invasion were a mixture of studio portraits, prim and proper in their late Victorian normalcy, along with a few landscapes. Apparently good, though also fairly normal. But what must the discoverer of this cachet of plates thought when they sliced open the box marked private, gently opening the lid only to reveal 31 additional glass plate negatives? These, however, were not landscapes. And while some were portraits... These were not in the late Victorian vernacular. These 31 plates were all that was left of the private lives of Marie Hoeg and Bolette Berg. These photographs depicted Marie in men's clothing, some with a mustache, some as a boy. Others showed both Marie and Bolette together, depicted as husband and wife on a boat or posing before a backdrop. Still others featured two other women drinking and playing cards. Another featured a man dressed as a woman. Most, however, were of Marie in odd baggy clothes with a scrunched up face, posed with a gun and a pile of cash. She sometimes wore a men's uniform, and another, she was scolding a dog. But altogether, they tell an incomplete story, giving only clues and forcing us to pick and choose which of our modern biases to project upon Marie and Bolette. So we're going to be looking at 10, actually 11. I have a surprise one for you, Vanya. Ooh, Yeah, fun. 10 of... Their photos, they being Marie and Bolette. Uh, we're going to be looking at two at a time and then telling you a little bit more about their lives. They are in the show notes, and we are getting them from digitaltransgenderarchive.net. And the numbers that we'll be giving with the photos are from that website. So first one we'll be looking at is their number 13. Lucky number 13. And I've taken the liberty of writing a little caption 
Of course. Of course I have. Just It's an audio podcast. I figured, why not explain what the picture looks like? Oh, yeah, just be descriptive. Yeah. That's smart. It, does, it, it is smart. So the photo depicts a full-length couple's portrait. Marie, dressed as the husband. She's in a coat and pants and wearing a small cap. The wife is portrayed by a male friend in, in a dark skirt with puffy, heavy coat with, a, with huge buttons and a hat with like a feather on it. Oh, yeah. That coat is overly dramatic. The co- the, yeah, I've noticed that they... This must have been the style at the time. All their mm-hmm. coats are very, very dramatic. He has the muff as well. Yeah, he's holding, he's holding a muff in his left hand. So they're linked nearly arm in arm. Marie's face is half stern, though it looks like she's like choking back a smile. And the wife is doing everything he can not to smile. Oh, he's totally smirking. <laughs> he can't. He can't not. He's having so much fun. You can tell that she is a photographer and she knows exactly what men do. They stare off into the distance mm-hmm. and try to be as serious as possible. So she kind of nailed it there. That's true. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. She is a photographer. She knows how to pose. Um, she even knows enough to put her right foot forward, stepping out like they're on a stroll with the, the husband taking the lead. And they're obviously using a, a very typical backdrop from their photo studio with like palm fronds and a staircase and like a pillar painted onto it. It's it, the, the backdrop is like a subdued drama. It's essentially a parody of probably hundreds and hundreds of photos that she's taken, these, these couples' portraits. Yeah, she was in a port town, so she actually photographed a lot of sailors and people coming through that mm-hmm. wanted mementos. And our second photo is numbered 18. Mm, yeah, you picked this one. I did pick this one, and this is an interesting little photo, very different from most of her other work. Uh, this simple, straight-on portrait shows Marie wearing a heavy fur coat like some Arctic explorer especially especially in norway the arctic explorer photographs were seen as like ultra masculine and here marie's face is fully encircled by the hood and the shadow cast over it it looks like it could almost have been like her face could have almost been superimposed over the original's face and i'm I'm, it hasn't been that way but Mm. she stares dead-eyed and expressionless like straight on into the camera which is fun and a little unnerving it's giving me like midsummer vibes. Have you seen that I movie? I haven't seen it yet. No, I know I need to. I know I need to. Uh, just watch it. It's totally twisted. Okay. Watch it so you can understand why this has got the vibes. And everybody else, if you are looking at the picture, you probably know. So don't tell him until he watches it. <laughs> All of the rest of the photos, they're very cropped. And so the edge of the plates, they don't really show. This one, however, and I I don't know the reason, it shows a a thick black border around the entire shot. I don't know for sure, but it's possible it was taken with a different camera. But those are our first two. And we hope that you're following along with the pictures out. We really do. All 31 of these private photos are available at digitaltransgenderarchive.net. When we reference them by number, that is what we're basically referring to on that website. There will be a link in the show notes, as usual. One thing that we should make clear is that there's no evidence that Marie Hoag was transgender. While transgender people have existed since the invention of people, the language, and especially the semi-acceptance of them, is an incredibly modern thing. These photos, like any, should be viewed within some sort of context. But Marie left no context. What we do know is that these were not the photos that would have been displayed in their studio. Uh, These weren't the pictures that would be hanging on the wall, so to speak. So let's take a look at a couple more of them before we continue on. So the next one is one that you picked, and it is a very you photo. 
I love it. It's it's basically Marie sitting cross leg on some pillows in some sort of like white uh, pajama and her arms are crossed and she's got a cigarette in her mouth and she's staring directly into the camera and it's fucking fantastic. Well, I mean, she's, she's it's not just she has a cigarette in her mouth. It is dead center. Yeah, it's perfect. It's like, it was not ladylike to smoke as a woman back then. So um, any sort of woman smoking a cigarette was not okay. So I, I think this has just got like such a fantastic, like I would have this on my wall. <laughs> Literally, I could stare at it all day long. She's stunning. She and is. her eyes, everything about this is just absolutely wonderful. Well, you, you said she's staring into the camera and actually she's not. She's peering above it. You think so? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So maybe she's looking at Bullet? Could be, yeah. I mean, whoever was behind the camera. I mean, we have zero idea who took these pictures. I feel kind of bad that we like are viewing these pictures and talking about her. I think it's very important because she is such a huge part of um, just like feminism. And she did a lot for women in Norway. But these are her private, these were her private photos. She she wasn't displaying these. These were for her. I don't know if she was ever planning on showing them or maybe she forgot about them. Who knows? It is a little bit like staring into someone's like in intimacy and how their private life was completely separate than their public life, like you said. Yeah. So their portraits and their landscapes were, you know, where they made their money with like postcards and things like that. This is not that, you know, this is not it. This is their private stuff. And if someone took it today, it would just be like, oh, okay, cool, whatever, you know. Well, it wouldn't be picture. a big deal, but she's in her, and she's in drawers. Yeah. In her underwear, essentially, or somebody's underwear. And, but it's it's an odd photo. She's wearing shoes and stockings. It doesn't, it's, it's a photo that really doesn't make sense. It's obviously comedic, mm -hmm. but not as funny as the one that I'm picking for the next one, which is number 18. <laughs> and this is probably my favorite photo of Marie. She's in front of the same backdrop, again, the same backdrop. And here you can see a lot more of the backdrop, including the floor. She's wearing very loose knit and oversized, an oversized sweater with some sort of matching, sort of matching and, and very baggy pajama pants, no socks. The pose she's striking is a like very purposeful and, and Playful. Her feet are spread apart and her hands are in fists. The right's pressed against her upper hip while the left rests a little bit lower. Her hair has grown out a bit and it's kind of a messy bedhead of curls. It's I looked closer at it. It's more bedhead than curls. But the real star of this photo is Marie's face. It's scrunched up into this adorable smile and her eyes are sort of squinted. And while there's almost always like a bit of humor in her photos, this one she's beaming with, with happiness. It's spontaneous. And her little scrunched up nose is just to fucking die for. Oh no, it's fantastic. Love this photo. Well, since we've kind of looked at some, let's dig in to just the little bit that we know about the life of Marie. Marie Caroline Ludwig Hoeg was born on April 15th, 1866 in, I'm gonna pronounce all these words wrong, I apologize. In, Land, in Langsund, Norway, her father was a farmer and a preacher. Almost nothing is known about her childhood apart from the fact that she took to photography at a young age. 
As an adult, she moved to Finland and opened a photography studio in both Eknes and Hunko. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, you guys, I'm so sorry. But after five years, she moved back to Norway. Colleen Matorn is laughing at us right now a lot. I know. I was like, <laughs> I literally was just thinking, I'm so sorry, but this is what you get when you don't message us all the time. <laughs> so during those five years, however, her world was expanded. Not only had she become a professional photographer, but she was introduced to the Finnish Women's Association, part of the suffragette movement fighting to give women the right to vote. While in Finland, or soon after she returned, Marie met Bolette Berg, a woman six years younger than herself, but just as active in the feminist movement. They set up shop in Hort, a Navy town, in 1895. During the day, they would photograph portraits, and the sailors bought landscapes and postcards as souvenirs. But after hours, they opened their studio to feminist meetings. During this time, Marie founded several organizations, including the Horton branch of the National Association for Women's Right to Vote, a tuberculosis association, and the Social Discussion Association. Woo! Yeah, busy, busy lady. <laughs> Some of the only writings by and about Marie come from the minutes of and transcriptions of these meetings. She was an organizer and an activist. And it was during this time when these 31 private photos were taken. So let's look at a couple more. This one is, is also one of my favorites. You picked this one, though. I did. Yeah, it's her with a dog in the corner, and she's got her finger up, and she's scolding the dog. And the dog is sitting kind of like how Ren sits, honestly probably being submissive a little bit to her. It's just interesting. I've never seen anything like this as far as a portrait from this era um, having so much, not exactly acting, but, you know, emotion. You know, like she's really performing. She's performing. She's uh, theatrically stern and she's wearing this, this puffy black dress, another puffy black dress, and she's scolding Tuss the dog. The dog's name is Tuss. <laughs> And he's standing on his hind legs and he's on a pedestal. So he's not quite at eye level with Marie, a little bit below. Her hair is short. I'm obsessed with her hair for some reason. Oh my God, her hair is so good. It's not quite as curled or as tangled as the other photos. And if you look close, she's wearing a chained belt and a timepiece on a chain that's pinned to the outer layer of her top, I guess. I'm not sure what it is. If you look really close, you can see Marie's darkly stained index finger which is the true sign of any photographer during the 1800s. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, Tuss appears in several of her other shots, though this is really the only one where the dog is performing, sort of, and we'll get to that. So this next one. Well, Marie didn't do a lot of experimenting in her photos, but a few of her self-portraits are diptychs. So that's two photos in one, side by side. The photo in this case is cut down the middle with two versions of Marie interacting. On the left is a very serious Marie wearing the same dark dress as before. She's seated on a wooden chair. Her brow is furrowed and she looks very stern. She holds something on her lap, though I can't really tell what it is. On top of that is something else. And I think it's an old timey bottle opener. Mm. I, I don't know why she would have a bottle opener there. I, I, I don't know. Uh, the temperance movement was a big thing at the time, so it could be symbolic of that. No idea. But on the right side, the photo is more playful. Marie's wearing the same outfit, and she's seated in profile. 
and very blurry. She's looking away from the camera, but she's holding a mirror up next to her head so that we can see her face with a, a glance and a smile looking up. And that's, for the most part, I think, what she was trying to get in focus. But even that's not in focus. The right side of the plate has dust embedded into the emulsion and possibly a thumbprint over her face, around her face. Not an intentional, it looks like an accidental thumbprint. And we're both sides, both sides were probably taken within minutes of each other. For some reason, the right side looks so much worse with the embedded dust being the only thing in focus. And she was probably playing with some sort of metaphor or maybe showing the two different sides of her. We, we don't know. The mirror is often a symbol of self-reflection. And maybe it's showing us which side of Marie Marie uh, likes best. Yeah, maybe she's showing what she has to show on the outside, but what really is on the inside is that reflection of her. Maybe, maybe. I do appreciate how the stern Marie is looking very sternly at happy Marie. And mm -hmm. Maybe that was what she was saying as well. As in the United States, the fight for equal voting rights for women was directly tied to the Victorian era gender norms and traditions. Starting around 1885, feminist groups sprung up all over Norway and Finland. The arguments for and against the women's right to vote seem pretty familiar. The progressive left believed that women were humans and should have equal rights because they were humans. The conservative and religious right believed that women were too emotional and giving them the right to vote would harm society. In the 1890s, a constitutional amendment in favor of women's suffrage was proposed and defeated a number of times. Each year or so, however, that voting gap between yeas or nays drew closer and closer. Marie's organizations, along with a multitude of others, advanced these ideas. This was no simple task, as it was the men in power who they had to convince. For reasons unknown, Marie and Bolette closed their photography studio in Horton in 1903 and moved to Christiania, present-day Oslo. Meanwhile, Marie continued to work with various feminist groups in Horton. Finally, in 1913, Norwegian women won full equality with men when the constitutional amendment was ratified after being voted on for the 15th time since 1890. So let's look at two more photos before moving on with Marie and Bolette. Now, the first one, which is number 10 in that series, is a sister photo to the, it's a companion shot to the baggy knitted pajamas shot. I chose this one because you seem to be wearing this outfit constantly. <laughs> I, I would feel comfortable in something like that, yes. What I adore about it is it's something that we don't see very often, the back of people. <laughs> We don't, especially in this era. It is so odd to see a picture like this. Yeah. I would love to know what she was what she was doing. Why was she like showing off the, the baggy ass on her pants? Like what was going on? Maybe her head is down, her arms are crossed. I, there's nothing else to look at. So yeah. I don't know, but I love the photo. <laughs> and your photo is something I just want to create. Like I have a morning gown and I actually have an old Victorian umbrella and I'm like, can I get Eric to recreate this shot? Oh, I would absolutely love to. So using nearly the same angle as the pajama shots, this photograph features a man who, the, the same one who portrayed the wife in the earlier photo, I think. Not 100% on that actually, but I think it's him. Here, he's dressed as a woman again and is now holding a black umbrella. His dark dress is covered on the top by a short cape or maybe some sort of overcoat. 
again, with these large ass buttons. His expression, I'm, I looked at it and tried to figure out like, what is he expressing? And it's like nonchalant waiting, like at a bus stop. He's got sideburns and a cookie crumb mustache. <laughs> so, you know, the cookie crumb mustache, it looks like you have a little bit of cookie crumbs on your upper lip, but no, it's, it's hair, I think. There was a guy who worked at a vintage shop when I first moved to Seattle and we'd call him Cookie Crumb. <laughs> anyway, he has a similar feathered cap as in the other photo. I love his expression, his head slightly yeah, it's, cocked. It's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, looking off to, to somewhere, nowhere. It's wonderful. Continue for us, Vanya. After moving to Christiania in 1903, Marie and Bullet opened another photography studio producing mainly scenic photographs, postcards. They also started a feminist book publishing company, as well as a wholesale paper shop. Ever expanding, at some point, they even offered reproductions of art from Norway's National Gallery. Marie was elected vice president of the Art Publishers Association, where she promoted Norwegian art over all others, trying to foster some sort of pride in the art produced by their fellow Norwegians. She also remained political, protesting against the authoritarian rule. In 1914, Marie published a three-volume, 1,000-page book entitled Norwegian Women. It was composed like an encyclopedia, featuring numerous articles about women in an array of different fields. Marie and Bolette lived in Christiania for the rest of their lives, though they also bought a farm together outside of the city as a sort of vacation home. Oh, sounds amazing. <laughs> it does. Bolette Berg died in 1944 at the age of 72. Five years later, in 1949, Marie died. She was 83. Marie's obituary was glowing, and her funeral was attended by throngs of people. A friend of hers, Inga Mell, wrote a tribute to her. When we look back on her brilliant efforts, we must admire what she has been able to accomplish. She had initiative and courage. She was an administrator of rank. In addition, she was very modest. For her, it was always the case. She never thought of honor and fame for herself. The older generation probably remembers her energetic figure, the intelligent face with a short haircut. She retained a youthful appearance into her old age, a humorous wink and infectious laugh. Her memory was phenomenal, and she was festive when she began to speak. Since the cough, she had been ill, but in spiritual vigor. Her memory will always be alive here. Another summed up Marie. She came in like a tornado and woke up Sleepy Horton. But today, if she is remembered at all, it is for those 31 private photos taken with Bolette between 1895 and 1903. So let's look at our final, our final set here. You picked this first one, number 12. Yeah, this is my favorite. <laughs> it's the it's painted mustache. Mm -hmm. It's such a good mustache. I, I, I respect that she went for this style of mustache, honestly. It was, yeah, a very, very good style of mustache. Her hair is also very... Uh, short and combed straight and down. She kind of looks like what's the the lead singer of 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 Madness? That same <laughs> that same haircut. Oh, right. Yeah. She's wearing this incredibly bourgeoisie suit as well, with like a pinned tie and a tight collar. And it's probably the best dressed character of hers in any of the photos. 
I would say so. It's everything that I want in a portrait of myself. (laughs) It's clearly like a mockery of and a parody of like the wealthy. There's something very powerful about a portrait like this. You know, as the photographer and as the subject in this case, she has power over that power. And that's what satire and parody offer us. Absolutely. So mine, which is number 20, Marie's photos are odd, but they're never really unsettling. This one, however, it it comes close for me. And it's a combination of a couple of things that make it so. Here, Marie is half wearing a button-down top held closed by only two buttons. The three top buttons are undone, and it's barely covering her breasts. Her shoulders are exposed, though the pose isn't at all sexual in the least. The lower buttons are also undone, and her stomach is slightly exposed. She's seated... And you can see a bit of her houndstooth skirt, but it's bunched up like it's like it's hiked up a little bit. Her arms are, are at her side, sort of off a little bit, and her hands are just out of frame. Her face is utterly expressionless, and her hair has grown out to almost curls. It kind of looks almost like a bouffant in a way. I like that she seems to straighten her hair when she is in her masculine role in these photographs. And then when she is portraying maybe more of a feminine side, she goes for the curls. Seems that way, yeah. Another reason why this photo is so unsettling is because this is really the first time you're seeing a lot of her more exposed. Yeah. She's not covered in bulky clothing or loose pajamas. You can see her tiny frame a little bit more and she looks more like possibly like a young boy than a woman it's it's odd seeing the you know comparing the two photos here the one with the mustache she looks very broad-shouldered and muscular and then when you actually see her shoulders they're nothing at all like that they're very almost gangly it's, a, it's strange. This is the same person uh, around the same time, too. You know, it's very mm-hmm. strange. I, I don't think it's possible to tell what she was going for with this photo. It doesn't seem sensual. And uh, one of the books that I was reading about her, it, it says that she's maybe depicting herself as a sex worker. And, and maybe, but I don't see it. I just don't see that. But maybe. It's kind of badass that you can't really sexualize any of her photos. She's stunning. She's a has a beautiful face she's her expressions are hilarious she's great but there's just there's not really any way to sexualize it in any male or female way which is kind of perfect honestly because i think that's kind of why people enjoy these so much so if you scroll down a little bit vanya there's one photo I wanted to add that it's not a part of the collection at the Digital Transgender Archive, and I, d- I don't know why. <laughs> the, the archive has 31 photos, and there's supposedly 31 photos in that box marked private. So was this one that was outside of the box that wasn't marked private, or what was going on? But I love this photo. This is an odd photo with Marie, Bolette, and Tuss the dog. Oh my God, Tuss is stealing the show. <laughs> They're standing in front of a wooded backdrop and there's a small fence made of like sticks and branches between them. Marie's back is to the camera and she's looking at Bolette, who is peering off to the right of the frame. Tuss the dog has a stick in his mouth and is looking at whatever Bolette is looking at. Both are dressed in dark heavy dresses with puffed out sleeves. 
This photo is different because in this photo, you can see the edge of the glass as well as the markings in the corner from how the plate was held to the plate holder. Mm -hmm. None of the other photos show this at all. I don't know if they were cropped out or it's just a different holder. I don't know. No way to know. You can see that they are using props here, which there is hay on the ground or grass of some sort. And you can tell that this is a backdrop and shot indoors. You could see the edge of the backdrop yeah. on the left-hand side. So it's not even a very big backdrop. This is, you can see the even the, the backdrop stand in the photo. Yes. And that would have been cropped out, I think. If it was shown, it was it would probably be shown in an oval frame. So you wouldn't be seeing yeah. any of the markings of the plate. But it does show a little bit, I guess, behind the scenes. And as a photographer, that's always interesting to us who enjoy these little things like, oh, we now now I know what her holder looked like. <laughs> and that's kind of nice. It kind of isn't such a mystery. There's like these little things that make it not so mysterious. Yeah, it's a very relatable picture because of that. To us. I mean, probably not to other people. Tuss is killing me. Like, this dog, I just, I want to eat him, <laughs> but not. But you know what I mean? Like, oh, he reminds me of Ren a lot. Yeah. He, he's got a little, he's spunky. And look at him standing still, all completely not blurry at no. all. Like, he was a good boy. Totally, totally still. <laughs> I don't know why you would take a photo like this. And during this time. I don't understand it. And I love that I don't understand it and probably never will. So those are our 11 out of the 31, I guess 32 photos that are available. Most of the information we have about Marie came from the book, Marie Hoeg, A Political Portrait by Britt Connie Stuxard, published in 2009. It is only available in Norwegian, like the Norwegian language, but thanks to Interlibrary Loan and Google Translate, I was able to get the book and spend days taking photographs of the 242 pages and then ran it to the translator and then formatted and translated it back to, to, into English so I could read it and I could figure out basically what the author was trying to say. The vast majority of the book is about the fight for women's rights in Norway. It's tangentially tied to Marie. Interesting, but a bit out of our scope. Basically, every morsel of information about Marie and Bolette that we could find has been relayed to you here and now. To comprehend these photos at all, even to just look at them, we have to bring the only thing that we have to our interpretations. We might see a same-sex couple or maybe a transgender or non-binary person. All of these things have existed for as long as there have been humans. On the other hand, we might be seeing two platonic feminists having a laugh at gender norms or just having fun playing in their photo studio after hours. Or maybe something completely different. Unless someone somehow discovers a diary or letters from either Marie or Bolette, we'll just never know for sure. We're often told not to bring out modern sensibilities and morals to our study of history. And often that's a good point. We have to take the past as it happened, factually, and honestly, and historically speaking, since we don't know, we shouldn't take our own speculations too seriously. However, there is another aspect to consider here, the art they created together. To this, as to any work of art, we are required to bring ourselves to our interpretation. How we see any photo or painting or movie now is not how the viewers would have seen it when it was originally created. Rather than denying our rights and urges to interpret these works, 
because we feel that we should be disconnected from the art, we should lean into our modern sensibilities insofar as they help us to understand what these photos can mean to us now. We cannot know what Marie was thinking when she painted on the mustache or the officer's uniform, but at least in a small way, we can explore our own modern sensibilities. And when we combine our modern takes with what we know of the historical facts, we can further apply these lessons to our own work. We know for a fact that what Marie and Bolette photographed would have been nearly sacrilegious in the late Victorian era. This was far beyond the bounds of what was accepted. They were risking a lot just to take these photos. But what we can also see is how joyful they were while doing it. Marie's scrunched up nose, her over-serious mustache, the way she scolded Tess the dog are all testaments to the fact that they were having fun. Life for women in the late 1800s was difficult and full of obstacles and outright hatred and discrimination. Nothing like today. And yet, <laughs> and yet Marie and Bolette smiled and laughed and created all while fighting like hell for equality and human rights. And when they had helped to win the right to vote, they didn't just vote, they voted and continued the fight against authoritarianism and fascism. And even though they were photographers and feminists in the late 1800s, what they did doesn't seem all that different than what we should be doing now. Well, it's a beautiful moment to kick back, maybe kick off those house slippers, sit down in your wonderful reading chair and see what we have on uh, the coffee table for zines. Is that is that what we're doing? We're going with the coffee table? Yeah. Okay. All the zines that I get in the mail are on my coffee table and they sit there for as long as they need to sit there. Okay. Um, well, this, this time around, we have two zines, uh, issues one and two of Plastic Perspective by Anna Starr. I got those two. You did, yes. It's a half-size zine, black and white and color, though mostly color, and all Holga. So this is something I, I don't think I've seen before. Most of the photos, or maybe about half the photos, are taken by Anna using a Holga. What Anna's done is she's kind of made a compilation zine. So she's showing us her work and work of some of the folks that she likes, ones who have submitted for the zine. Her reason for starting a zine is pretty much the same reasons as zines themselves existed from the beginning. She could never get other zines to, to publish and accept her Holga shots. So she just said, fuck them and did it herself. I really like this idea. I mean, we've seen compilation zines before, but this is sort of a hybrid. This is a hybrid. Basically the first half is Anna and the second is everybody else. And it's a lot of people, like over 40 per issue. Yeah, it's amazing how many people she was able to get to submit to this yeah. and just seeing the list of people um i just know how much work that was <laughs> a ton of work yeah <laughs> to make this happen there are multiple shots on a page but it never really feels like overcrowded and anna's choices make sense and it honestly it just works the second issue is a little different uh while the first was stapled like a saddle stitch, this one is perfect bound. Also, Anna's own photos take up maybe only a quarter of the zine, and she devotes the rest of it to over 40 other photographers. And together between the two issues, it's around 85 photographers, which is amazing. I mean, having to work with like 85 photographers, I mean, even with the podcast, we, we must have worked with around that many, but it was over years and years. So 
many hats off to her. And so looking through the various names, I do see a lot of Seattle photographers. I don't shoot too much in my city, but it's nice to see it done by others. Another thing that should be automatic, and this is like a sore point for me, Anna gives contact information for every photographer. Some zines, ones that I think we've been published in, have failed to do that. <laughs> and I'm throwing a little bit of shade, but seriously, that's kind of shitty. Anyway, she's putting together issue three and is now accepting submissions. If you shoot a Holga, get on it. You can contact her at anna.s.snapshots on Instagram, where you can also find the link to buy the zines. We'll have the link in the show notes. They're $15 each. They're full color printed. So it's really a good deal. Have at it. All right. So next zine is going to be actually another person who is kind of doing a self-publishing. And I am, this just warms my heart to hear these people wanting to help other people publish their, their work. So this is from Travis Kennedy's Better Off Zine. This zine, Better Off Five by Zochi Perez, is, is loud. It's loud in every sense of the word. It's it's many city shots. I'm thinking, what, San Francisco maybe? I, I'm not really sure. I'm not up on my cities, but it's very loud. It's very red. It's very colorful. There's something about the colors, the the different like red tones, and I'm not sure what what film he shot because it doesn't say he's keeping that secret. <laughs> I mean, if I had to choose, I'm assuming he was maybe shooting with a Fuji film, possibly? What do you think? Oh, it's very possible. It does look, yeah, you know, kind of those Fuji colors, a little bit of blue to everything. Yeah, it's kind of got a little bit of blue to everything. And it, is, it does look like San Francisco. It's not. It's um, New York City. Shut up. Totally. Totally New York City. It is. Yep. Huh. Neat. Uh, one of my favorite photos is the seafood lunch nighttime market kind of shot. Yeah. It's got like this like really gritty grain, but it's just oh, perfect. <laughs> and you could see wet floor on the little sign on over there and the lights. On, I just, I love it. I think this is just such a great shot. Yeah, it is busy and wild and crazy and so much stuff. You can almost like hear, like every time you turn the page, you can hear the city. Yeah. And it's raining in a lot of the photos. And I, I, I kind of, I love cities in the rain, which is, you know, convenient since I live in Seattle. But the last page <laughs> is a very framed shot looking out of a window. And I don't know, I, I really enjoy this shot. It, it's, it's a wonderful way to, I always look at the last photos to see how people are ending their zines. And this is a perfect last photo. It is. So yes, absolutely get this. I mean, honestly, just follow what Better Off Zine is doing. They haven't put out a bad issue yet. Like even an issue no. that's kind of like, meh, no, follow them. And I have a feeling coming up next month or so, they'll be, uh, they'll be publishing somebody who we all know and love. Ooh, that's exciting. exciting. Look at you knowing like some I, I know intel. Some, I know some stuff. I know some stuff. Behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So if you're interested in any of his zines, it's betteroffzine.com. All through a lens, 
is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we are able to afford to keep the podcast running. Patreon helps us to cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment, it helps us buy books, it helps us do our research, and helps us buy some zines. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you. We couldn't make this podcast without you. I tip my hat. We've got two new patrons since last we met. We have got Chris L. and Andrew McGregor. Many, many thanks. May the blessings of the film gods be upon you both. Thank you. We appreciate it. When you subscribe to us on Patreon, you get monthly bonus episodes, full-length interviews, some random posts and photos, and much more extra nonsense. Lately, Eric's been reading the memoirs of photographer William Harry Jackson. So if you're William. really interested in hearing him read books, then you look no further. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more information. Well, Vanya, it has come to the end of another wonderful episode. Yeah. Are you up to next week? Ooh, yeah. I am um, actually, now that summer's almost basically over, I'll be hitting the road soon. Gas prices have gone down, and it's time for me to get the hell out of Los Angeles for a while before I lose my mind. <laughs> That's a, a great time to do it, I guess, right before you go crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, that's already happened, but let's just try not to get crazier. How about you? Well, it's my deepest, most wonderful wish that I can finally get out camping this weekend. Because of the podcast schedule, finding time off during the on season is kind of a tough thing. There's always something going on. But hopefully I can get all of this edited and sorted out before the weekend so that I can have a weekend. And I got a new tent, so I'll be hopefully camping in all of that. Nice. And what's up for the next dev party? Oh, I got myself a Stearman Press 8x10 tank. One of those tray tanks, you know, the one that you had in the last dev party episode. Got myself Mm -hmm. one of those. And my goal is to use it to develop glass plates. We will see how that goes. We certainly don't already know. How will it work? Who the fuck knows? Do we? I don't know. Well, are you asking yourself the questions? I'm asking (laughs) myself these questions, as all good photographers should ask themselves. Will it work? Who the fuck knows? Vanya, is there anything else we have to say? Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at surfmartian on Instagram and at silverwavesofgrain on Grainery. 
and Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers on Insta and concept card on Greenery. Yes, and speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag all through a lens podcast. Be featured. You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Subscribe, and if you can, leave us a review. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. See you next week at Dev Party. Um, Vanya. Yo. Do you uh, want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. All right, plug, plug your fridge back in. Can I press stop first? Yeah, I guess so. To our Patreon subscribers. Nope, subscribers. Uh...